Hey, welcome to the 54th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated scene writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genres I'm thinking of. And today, my guest is Mac Engel, the terrific sports columnist for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And we're going to devote a lot of time to digging into the role of the newspaper sports columnist in 2018. What is he supposed to do? What is he supposed to write? Do analytics impact what he puts down on paper? Hell, does it even matter? We'll also discuss Mac's occasional liberal takes in a very conservative market. How does that play? Is it even worthwhile? And it's all right now on Two Writers Slinging Yang. All right. So, uh, Mac, first of all, thank you. Uh, thanks for doing this. You know, you've had a really distinguished and impressive career, but I have to say I learned today you were honored with something that I feel like, you know, I have a, my, my guest last week was a Pulitzer winner. No one, however, has had this happen to them, which is 2014 Fort Worth Weekly <laughs> names you hottest local male celebrity. And I just want to say part of it, it says this dude's casual masculinity Classically handsome features, those cheekbones, that rugged lantern lantern jaw, and a damn fine head of hair have established his hotness as a welcome fact of online media life in North Texas. And I, uh, we're four years out, but a, a belated congratulations to you on that one. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, there's tough. an even funnier story behind that. If you want me to indulge you. Do tell, it. please. Uh, first of all, you're, it's so silly. And even though, you know, obviously it's a small readership. If anybody gives you that, you're like, you know what? I'm going to damn well own that. So I kind of played it up and hammed it up and had some fun with it. So a couple of years later, I guess it was the next year, the year after, uh, the whole Baylor thing was going on. And I was pretty visible throughout that whole thing. I, I stayed with that from the time Texas Monthly uh, broke the story uh, until after Art Bryles was fired. I was one of the more vocal, local and national uh, members of the media to stay with that because my gut told me there was really something there. Well, throughout that whole thing, Jeff, Baylor was not making anybody available to talk about it. They had pretty much put everybody on a gag order, including Ken Starr. And everybody remembers Ken Starr, who at the time was the Baylor University president. And I had met Ken once a couple of years prior to that. I don't think he would have remembered me. So I think in February or March of 2016, he was available at a prayer breakfast uh, about 15 minutes from my house. So I went. Well, when I get there, there's like 1,200 people there, and I think there's no way I'm going to get him. And then he gives a, a very interesting speech, and I was fascinating. And at the very end, Jeff, they said, Judge Starr will be available for a Q&A across the hall. So I waited in line, and I was the last one to ask a question. And I introduced myself. I said, uh, Judge, in the issue of full disclosure, uh, I am a reporter from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. And he says, who are you? And I said, my name is Mac Engel. And he looks at me and he points. He says, you're Mac Engel? And in that <laughs> moment, Jeff, I was stunned that he knew who I was. And I mm -hmm. thought, you know, of course he's going to know who I am. I've been very critical of of everything Baylor-related as it relates to this. So after the after the exchange goes, you know, finishes, he comes up to me. I exchange, I, I extend my right hand to shake his hand. I said, 
You didn't have to do this. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You were very professional about it. And Jeff, he gives me a hug. And he says, I just wanted us to hug the guy who was voted Fort Worth's hottest male celebrity. That's fantastic. <laughs> this is the guy who climbed up President Clinton's behind for years. And all right. of a sudden, he knows who I am. That is my claim to fame. I was thinking about this when I was reading your different columns today. And, you know, I grew up in New York. And when I was growing up in New York, the sports columnists, they were the shit. Like Mike Lupica was the shit. Dave Anderson was oh, the yeah. shit. George Vesey was it. These guys were larger than life figures who they were celebrities. You knew them. You knew their names. You knew what they looked like. You knew their style of writing. In 2018, you're a columnist for, you know, one of the bigger papers in the state of Texas. You're a known sports columnist. Do sports columnists still carry the weight that they carried a couple of decades ago? No, I, I don't think they do. And it, it's a, it's a huge concern for me. And I, I think, you know, when you were growing up in New York, you probably had must, you know, must see, you know, reading with the, the guys that you just mentioned. And when you wrote for SI, you would become that way for me. If Jeff Perlman's writing about something, then that is something I'm going to dedicate the time to read. Oh, and uh, I felt the same way about Dan Jenkins. I felt the same way about Rick Riley. Uh, I, I think those people exist still today. But Jeff, my gut instinct tells me that I am one of the last ones in the door in, in, in that realm. And I don't know if it's going to I don't know if those big opinions and big swings and takedowns of of teams and local sports figures uh, is appointment reading the way it ever will be again. I think it still has a role, uh, but I just don't know if it'll, it, and it's like everything else. It's never the same, but, you know, like you were out in L.A., and to me, Bill Plaschke is still, if I'm in L.A. or if I want to know what's going on in L.A., uh, I'm going to read him or Tim Sullivan um, in Louisville, Kentucky. No, it's, it's changed. And I think, uh, there is a lack of, you know, we talk about it. You know, sometimes journalists, we can be really self-important and, you know, think we're curing cancer. But I think in terms of sports, there is the matter of the fourth estate. And I don't know, Jeff, if, um, and what I mean by fourth estate, I'm talking about independent news agencies that cover teams that do receive some kind of money and, you know, from the audience, the, the taxpayers and stuff like that. And I don't know, there, there's not, that's the only place to hold them accountable. Right. And I, I just don't know if that's as, as important to uh, the sports consumer today as it was when you and I were growing up. And it kind of breaks my heart in a ways, but I, I don't, I, I, I think it'll last for a little bit longer, but in terms of people coming in who are, in 20, who are 20 and 22 and 23 years old, I don't know if it's going to be there for them when, in, when they turn 35 and 36 anymore. I mean, Lupica, in a way, is a really good example for me. Like, he was not my favorite writer growing up, but he was the dominant columnist in New York. Everybody knew Mike Lupica. Everyone would, you would see people on the trains going into the city reading the Daily News and reading Mike Lupica. People would talk about, did you hear what Lupica wrote? Did you see what Lupica wrote? Um, I don't think that exists for anyone. Online columnists, you know, maybe Bill Simmons had it going for a while. Maybe it's because there's so many voices out there and so many outlets. I don't, I don't know, but that singular voice of power, I don't think exists like it used to. I think you're right. No, I, you know, for us and, and for, and for Dallas Fort Worth for decades, it was Randy Galloway. Mm -hmm. And Randy was bigger than life. And, and he had just he had this great classic Southern Texas drawl that, that sounded like Sam Elliott.
you knew it a mile away. And that's what made him such a, a dominant figure in the local sports talk scene on radio as well. That That's sort of a, a, an alignment of many moons. He had the personality. He was a good reporter. And I think that's what I, when I think about this, I'm like, how am I going to survive? Because now it's about survival. And I, you know, I follow your Twitter account and I, I see some of the things that you say about journalism and that you encourage young people to pursue it still. And I, I do. I want them to go in with their eyes wide open, but I also am now recognizing what, if I'm going to last as a columnist or anything like that, I have to do original reporting. You can't just sit there necessarily and opine about, well, this team's awful and you got to fire this guy. You can have some of that, but I also have to think you have to distinguish your voice. And the only way truly to do that is original reporting with information that people aren't necessarily going to get from just some big giant voice swinging a big stick. Because too many people can do that. You've got to have relationships with people that give you information, either quotes or, or something that makes you unique as a reporter too. I just don't think being a columnist is certainly not for me is going to carry me through to the end. Wait, that's interesting. So would you say actually the nature of what it is to be a columnist, at least in your eyes, has changed where in the past, I mean, Say who you want. Skip Bayless, when he was in Texas, I, whatever we think about Skip, the guy was an influential columnist. Oh, and huge. Yeah. A lot of times, yeah, and he was really talented and really good. And, and a lot of times, yep. you know, his take would be, you know, whatever. Troy Aikman um, needs to blah, 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 look for Alvin Harper more. And he'd write a column about Troy Aikman needs to look for Alvin Harper more. And that would be the column. Do you, do you feel like you can't get away with that anymore? Like, you can't just be a columnist who's like, the Cowboys need to improve their kicking game. And here's why. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I think, and I'm sure you've done this too, but with news organizations, since we can track everything now, like what the consumer is buying, so to speak, then that influences what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a great example of this, and I, I couldn't, it was half parts discouraging and half parts encouraging. So in the Big 12 championship game, TCU played Oklahoma. Now, I've got to write two things. One thing I've got to write right after the game ends, because now news agencies, more than anything else, are influenced by Google search. So you've got this short window where you put stuff out that people are going to be online consuming, but it's got, it's got to be done quick after the game. So the game is over in the middle of the third quarter. Oklahoma is going to crush TCU again. So I've got, like I said, Jeff, I got to write two things. One's a little bit shorter. One's a little bit longer. Um, but both have to be about the game, you know, game centric. And I think, oh, no, all right, all right, Baker Mayfield's going to be a bust. That's the headline. Hmm. There's some facts in it, you know, about, you know, a lot of Heisman winner quarter, Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks have been busts. Uh, I don't like his height very much. Uh, you know, he's been kind of a punk. So I write it. It blows up. Everybody's reading it. I'm getting killed online or I'm getting praised online. It's exactly what you want in a column, which is, you know, 50% positive, 50% negative, right? Mm -hmm. The other one, I, but I wrote it fast. Jeff, I think I probably wrote that in 30 minutes uh, and then, or maybe longer, but quick. Then the other one, I do some interviews. It's good. It's based on the idea of anybody in the Big 12 catching Oklahoma at all in football because nobody can and what that's going to take. Uh, Gary Patterson, the TCU coach, had you know some good comments on it. It was good. Nobody read it. Nobody. Everybody read the big swing op opinion and you know, what they perceived as an attack on Baker Mayfield. Hell, even Baker read it. He liked it on Twitter. And that, to me, was telling about sort of the state of journalism 
as it relates to like a columnist. So there are certain, you've got to hit that right nerve. Talk about Skip Bayless. I've only read Skip once, but he's a super talented guy. You can hate his guts mm -hmm. all you want, but he's lasted. He's reinvented himself and he's, he's smart. So he's lasted. Right. Stephen A is the same way. Jason Whitlock's right. the same way. Irrespective of whatever you think about them professionally, well, they've done it. So the joke's on us if we sit there, oh, they're awful, they're awful. Well, they're laughing all the way to the bank in a successful career where not many people make it. So they've done it. So you have to at least respect that part of it. The rest is sort of up to an individual. But when I did that stuff, Jeff, back in December, it was like, okay, I'm going to have to do both if I'm going to expect to make it. You wrote a column, March 19th, Cowboys need Eric Reed, but his anthem protest yeah. could cost him. And that's on you. I just want to read the lead real quick. No behavior and no amount of money has ever uh, deterred Jerry Jones from signing a single player. But we have found an action so abhorrent that the owner of the Dallas Cowboys will not tolerate. Safety Eric Reed is a player that Cowboys could use, and he will come at a decent price. But he's one of them kneelers. Jerry's tolerance for off-the-field issues is legendary, but he doesn't have the stomach for those who take a knee because he knows you don't. Any team's decision not to pursue a perfectly serviceable 26-year-old player is on you. And then you wrote, fans can cheer drug dealers, DWI offenders, killers, rapists, and beaters of dogs and women. But a few dudes who silently and peacefully protest by not standing during the national anthem, fans will turn, walk away, and not spend their money. Number one, great column. Like, great column. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Number two. Thank you. It is interesting because you are in a, obviously, very conservative market. What was the reaction to that one? Well, I believe it. If you're going to write it, it's got to be authentic. Eric Reed doesn't have a job because teams are scared about what he could potentially do in alienating the fan base. Colin Kaepernick's collusion case is, you know, this, the same thing, Jeff. You and I both know that. I mean, think about it. Just think about who the Cowboys have had on their team. Right. They brought in Greg Hardy. Greg Hardy is one, was one of the most troubling characters I have ever covered. In fact, one member of the media, and I don't want to say their name, said, I am never talking to him. It just as a oh. point, and this was an established member of the media, and their point was, I am not talking to this person at all, ever. And, uh, you know, there was other ones, too. Demetrius Underwood, Alonzo Spellman. Alonzo Spellman scared the hell out of me. Now, granted, <laughs> he had some serious medical issues going on, and I, I, that's a broader, different issue. But, man, Jeff, they have brought guy after guy after guy. The Greg Hardy one to me was the biggest joke I've ever seen. But they won't sign a guy who will take a knee during the national anthem for two minutes. That, that's it? You really? That, that's, and the only reason is, is because Jerry Jones knows that will affect his wallet. And I, as a businessman, I understand it. As a philanthropist or any of those other things, or as a, you know, as a, as a local leader of, uh, in this community, you're like, really? Are you kidding me? That, that, that's your problem? Part of me just wants to look at fans like, just ignore it. You don't care anyway. You don't care. The whole, and, and you, can, you and I can talk about this for a month. The whole yeah. issue has been completely lost. Nobody cares what the issue is. They don't. You go to these neighborhoods that most people can't even conceive for a minute, then it becomes about ungrateful millionaire athletes. And you're like, dude, they weren't an ungrateful millionaire athlete when they were 13 years old. They're, right. they're trying to sit there. And, and stand up for issues that matter to their neighborhoods, where they came from. But you don't care. So don't give me this whole idea. Oh, it's about America. And this, no, it's not. It's about your America. It's about your neighborhood. It's not about theirs. Because if you were, you might stop and listen, but you don't want to. And to me, when I looked at the Eric Reed thing, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This guy's pretty good. He's not great. 
He's not the second coming of Ronnie Lott. He's pretty good. Colin Kaepernick sucked, but he was a lot better than most of those stiffs who were worse than him. He can't get a job? Are you kidding me? And and right. so when I looked at the Reed thing, I'm like, there's only one reason Eric Reed's not getting a job. And it's not because of the GM. It's not because of the coach. Because of the fans. The end. Now, if you disagree with me on that one, I am more than delighted to, to discuss it. I just looked at him like, that's the only reason this guy can't get a job. Before you continue with Two Riders Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my sister-in-law, Leah. So, Leah, you don't seem like your chipper normal self. I'm sick. You got the flu? No, definitely not. Strep throat? No, my throat is fine. Malaria? No. Scarlet fever? No. Chicken pox? No. So, what's the deal? Honestly, I've been searching and searching for a Stan Tally Oakland Invaders jersey, and my inability to find one has driven me to my sick bed. Really? Yes, it's horrible. Well, I have some amazing news. Two Riders Slinging Yang is sponsored by 503 Sports, and they're the kings of throwback sports merchandise. We're talking USFL, we're talking World Football League, we're talking XFL, minor league baseball, minor league hockey, or, put differently, if you're a suburban mother of two who has long dreamed of owning a Stan Tally Oakland Invaders jersey, well, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and all very reasonably priced. So be like Leah and go to 503-sports.com and type in coupon code YANG18 to get 10% off your first purchase. Let me ask you this. I um, I wrote a column earlier this year for The Athletic, and it was actually it was, mm-hmm. it was the only column I've written for the site that was kind of political, and it was about Trump and the USFL. And the, How did uh, it do? Terribly. Terribly. Was it well read? Did Oh, okay. <laughs> it was okay, Red, and the comments were all negative. And, and the basic take oh, okay. was, I don't come to this site to read politics. Oh, yeah. I want to read about sports. Yep. That's how I'm here. And I got to say, you know, um, I understand that. I actually do understand that. I, I think a lot of people see sports as a, as a release and a relief from the day-to-day, you know, whatever, yep. arduous nature of life. And I don't want to – look, I don't want to go to your site. And read you railing against the president. I want to read about who's going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft and blah, 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 blah. I hate to admit this in a way, actually, because I was a huge supporter of Jamel when she was going through her crap. And, and I like writing about politics. Isn't it fair sir, for a reader of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram to want to pick up the sports section or read online, read my favorite columnist, Mac, and not have to read another <laughs> column related to politics? No, I mean, seriously, though. Isn't it a fair yeah, thing no, for a reader to think? Oh, uh, yeah, it is. The first time I, I dipped my toe into that, uh, when it related to the president, he wasn't the president, president yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Trump had a political rally in Fort Worth right before the Texas primaries, and I wanted to go see it. And I got to say, you know, having, having seen it firsthand and witnessed yeah. it, and then seeing some of the reporting that came out after it, I can say with completely honest eyes, a lot of that stuff was exaggerated and didn't happen. Perfectly nice, peaceful rally. A lot of it was just crazy rumors. It was the day he introduced Chris Christie to the press as uh, Chris Christie was going to endorse him. Uh, so I saw him do it. I saw him treat one reporter with incredible respect. I'm talking about President Trump. None of that got reported. This was the day that uh, he had been asked about David Duke basically endorsing him as a candidate. And President Trump said, what do you want me to say? I disavow. I saw it. I witnessed it. But that didn't get reported for like, three or four days. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. This happened. So it just fed into this whole idea that the media had it in for Trump. Jeff, you and I both know it. A lot of people did. So I took that, exa- I took that small avenue and blew it up and I used it 
to, to write about Trump and basically how what he did to the USFL, which is, I imagine, will be a large part of your book, and ran the USFL under the ground. And I never thought he'd win in a million years. So I wrote about it, and man, I got lit up for that exact reason, which is I'm going to open my sports page because I want to read about sports, not some political rant. And, and I thought, you know what? They're right. I also know this. Sports can be a platform for larger issues. Jackie Robinson is obviously the one we use a lot. But I think the reader's point and the consumer's point is valuable. I was like, wait a minute. But sometimes also, and I've, I've been, you know, if you were covering a team on a daily basis last fall and the Cowboys got stuck right in the middle of it because Jerry Jones is friends with Donald Trump and Jerry is the most powerful owner probably in sports and he's also the most visible and compliant with the media. What other choice did we have last fall? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if you're, you're right. I, I mean, because I, I, at some point I was like, I am sick of writing about this. And I, I bet he kept talking about it. And you've been around him. You asked the guy's great, just the best of the media. I'm convinced it's one of the biggest reasons he got into the Hall of Fame is you ask him a question. He's going to answer it. Right. It might, it might take 10 minutes to do it. But I, I, to your to your specific point about what you wrote about the athletic and what I did. Yeah, I, I think the consumer is right in that. I, I think there is some validity to it. Which is, man, I'm not open to read this, listen to some, you know, crappy rant about politics. I've got other pages to do that. I want to use this as an escape. And I think that's true. I also think, and, and my, my editorial judgment in that case was a miss. But I think last fall, when it was right in the middle of our face, especially during the Cardinals game and a few others, you don't have any other choice. You got to do it. Right. You wrote a column, May 29th, rate by age nine and a mom at 13. Now she's a college grad and her baby was a Dallas Cowboy. Uh, it's a story of DeQuinton Osborne, who played football at Oklahoma State, was recently cut by the Dallas Cowboys. His mother, Dorothy, had him when he was twelve. When she was twelve, she's now thirty-six, and her, her son is twenty-three. Isn't that crazy, crazy, and it's really moving. And her story is moving. And I mean, you really got her to open up, which I thought was really impressive. It's a story of this woman who, again, she was she was um, she was raped when she was twelve. You have quotes from her. People would call me a whore. She said. Every day I was dealing with yeah. somebody. I had these why me questions. Now I'm a Christian. I have my faith. She moved into a state-assisted low-income housing near uh, South Grand Prairie High School. Entered a work-study program. She worked at McDonald's. She put her son in daycare, often from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. How did this story come to you? How did you even find out about it? And why did you decide to write it? Jeff, sometimes things just land in your lap. And then sometimes you just sort of, you know what I mean? And then you're driving down the street. You might see something. This one was landed in my lap. She was a nurse uh, for a friend of mine who is a general practitioner, who is also a Baylor grad and a big college football fan. And uh, when the Dallas Cowboys, the day or two after the draft, signed DeQuentin Osborne, my friend texted me and he said, DeQuentin Osborne's an amazing story. His mom worked for us uh, for a number of years. She's an amazing woman. And I said, what happened? She said, well, I think she had, he said, I think she had DeQuentin when she was really young. I said, okay. So he sent me the number. And then I looked at him, uh, Jeff, on the roster. I looked at his size. And I thought, if I'm going to write this, I better do it quick because he looks pretty small. My, my fear was he was going to be cut. So I called his mother, Dorothy. I introduced myself. And I said, uh, I'd love to interview. She said, oh, wow, okay. And she said, sure, I know Dr. Matter. And, oh, Jeff, you couldn't have been any nicer. And I said, um, I, I, I'm aware that I think you had to Quentin when you were pretty young. How do you mind my asking how young you were? She said, I was pregnant at 12 and I gave birth to him on Thanksgiving morning, 
when I was 13 years old. It's amazing. Jeff, can you imagine no. for a minute no. being a dad at 13? No. I was literally studying yeah, right. for my no, I mean, at 13 years old. You're in middle yeah. school. Yeah. And, and I, 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 when she told me that, I thought, you know, one of the next obvious questions was, was the relationship consensual? Because that's a really tricky question to ask. Mm-hmm. So I asked it that way. You're not going to ask, I, you know, you know, you're not going to ask the question, hey, were you raped? You can't say that. But Wait, how do you, you ask? Say, how, do you, how do you lead up to a question like that? Like, how do you actually phrase it? How do you get there? Uh, I don't know if you've done this. And, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you called because I'm going to I get to ask you a question here in a minute. Um, practice. I think you have to kind of know the conversation that you're in and read the other person and to know if they emotionally are okay with talking about what it is. She's 36. She's pretty smart. She's a college graduate. This isn't like you're talking to some 18 year old kid who's maybe not completely aware of everything yet. And I said, um, Ms. Osborne, I'm going to ask you something. Um, and if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. I said, but given your age, uh, was the relationship consensual? Because consensual, that's a nice, that's a much kinder, softer way to say it. And she said, well, that's, that's a fair question because it came up a lot when she was going through the process of applying for state assistance and things like that. And there was some concern, but the, the father was 17. Um, so there was, you know, obviously it wasn't statutory rape. It was a consensual relationship. And, you know, but she even said it, it was kind of muddy. So, you know, at 12, do you really know? But, you know, at that point, uh, she had been uh, molested and raped um, before she had even turned 10. So she was aware of what those things were like and maybe what consensual was as opposed to uh, rape was like. Um, the, she moved in with the father for a few years and that didn't last. And then she just kept going. And I think, Jeff, it put in a perspective about parenthood, about effort, about your own day, about your own struggles and think, you know what? I probably need to shut up because what this woman went through as a teenager and to do it, you can do it. And she did it. And now she had some help from high school counselors and things like that, but she did it. And she, it was so inspiring to hear her. And she just kept talking. And, you know, I think in those, I listened to an interview one time Kurt Eichenwald gave about interviewing. Eichenwald is New York Times bestseller. He's written some terrific books. Mm-hmm. And he talked about interviewing. And I've watched some of the guys and some of the, and, and Leslie Stahl too on 60 Minutes and how good they are at interviewing. And I think a lot of it is just about can you be quiet? And can you be quiet? Will the other person fill the void with their own uh, conversation? Chuck Klosterman talked about that one time in, in, in one of his books. I can't remember which one it was. It was one of the reasons though he didn't give interviews very often because he knows the tricks behind it. And one of them is the reality is that the reporter is oftentimes waiting for the other person to make a mistake and real reveal something that maybe they didn't want to reveal. That's terribly unfair. It's true, but it's unfair. And to Dorothy's credit, she just kept talking. And I think initially when it came out, she was overwhelmed by the response because it's a very personal thing. So I think it made her a little uncomfortable. But in the next couple of days, I think she grew more and more comfortable with it. And I got to be honest, I, I her story overwhelmed me because I couldn't conceive it. So I called the high school coach. I called the college coach. I called you. I, I called the place where she went to uh, where she's getting her um, her master's degree in nursing. I was like, is this check out? Is this because I couldn't conceive it. 
all of it checked out. It's totally legitimate. And her son was terrific, nice young man trying to make the Cowboys. Unfortunately, he was cut. But it doesn't mean, you know, football's over. He got his college degree. Uh, you know, she's got, like I said, an undergraduate degree in nursing from Texas Arlington University. It's just great. And it's one of those stories that you do where, you know, Jeff, sometimes you do them. You don't have to do anything. You know what I mean? You, you don't even have to right. do anything. You just talk to the person and their words are better than anything that you could ever possibly conceive or come up with, with even if you had a thousand thesauruses right in front of you, because their truth is just that fascinating. And in this case, inspiring. Do you feel like you have over the years sort of come up with, with little skill sets that makes people feel comfortable talking to you? Finally. Yeah. Finally. I, I think it's just confidence. Confidence that you're just going to sit down and have a conversation with somebody, not interviewing them. Remember when you were younger, you had to be the hardcore, tough guy journalist and asking hard questions that are going to change society. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And maybe you didn't go through that. I think I did. Yeah, of course. Of, course, so, of course. You know, you're just so serious. Right. Instead, you finally just relaxed and you just, you're chatting with somebody. And right. I, I don't know what those... You know, you, you, those interviews were like when you were younger, as opposed to when you were doing your book for, um, on, on, you know, boys will be boys or the USFL one, because the, what you're trying to do is to get them to open up and tell you stuff. Right. And I think there is a trick to it. And I think one of the biggest tricks to it is that can you have a conversation with a person, uh, that you're interviewing that you would know different when you and I were just chatting that day at the Rangers press box, like you're a really yeah. inquisitive guy. Like you were, you were constantly asking me questions and you know how much fun that can be when the other person's gives a crap enough to inquire about you as opposed to the other way around where you're just constantly pepper them with questions. I think part of the joy of this whole business though, like, I don't know, I don't know many really good journalists who don't want to be the ones asking the questions. Like I, I, when you talk about this woman and talking about her story and, and her son, like I'm in a way envious because I, I can picture you sitting there listening to her and just being sort of mesmerized by her story. And uh, I know a lot of reporters who would be interrupting throughout that interview. Oh, blah, 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 or blah, 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 blah. I just think the good ones don't have any desire to do that. I tell me your story. I just want to hear it. I have, I don't have anything I need to contribute to this one. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest keys to interviewing interviewer. Anybody is just, can you be quiet? Can you not, and when I would, when I would, when there was a lull in that conversation, it was more about absolute awe. I just, I asked her, I said, how did you do that? Cause at 25, I couldn't have asked that question because I didn't have right. a kid. Right. Well, after you've got kids and now you know. So yeah. I, I can't, I remember how overwhelmed I was when we had our daughter at, you know, a month. I thought I was going to die. And we had every, and we had everything. We didn't have family in time. We had everything. You're just an idiot about it. You just have no clue what you're doing. And she's telling me that story about giving the baby formula and she had no clue how to balance it out. And I was laughing. I'm like, oh, I can remember that. The difference right. was she was 13 by herself. Yeah. I was 35 and all these stupid books and all this other crap that didn't amount to anything. Right. And I, I think that's just the benefit of getting older. So you can look, you can know what that situation's like to, to really empathize with it. I love asking these questions. Biggest jerk athlete you've ever dealt with. Juan Gonzalez is up there. Juan got really mad at me for a question that I asked. 
because he had hurt his hand. And again, this is another guy whose career was just about done. 2002, he had hurt his hand. And a friend of mine says, I think he broke his hand when he slammed uh, uh, his helmet into the, the rack there at the, at the ballpark. So I asked him that. I asked, I said, Juan, did you get mad? And oh, he was livid, yelling at me, screaming, don't ever talk to me again. Well, in those situations, when you're a beat writer, you are dead if the stars don't talk to you, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, my God, Juan Gonzalez just shut me out. Well, he went on the disabled list a week later, and he was, he was, he was, he was done. I mean, I, I never even, it was never even an issue. But I remember how right. nervous that made me. So that was always one of the, and you know, as a sports journalist, we're all a collection of Trekkies. That's what, nothing we are is a bunch of nerds who couldn't play. Yeah. We weren't good enough to play. And I always right. laugh at, you know, sports writers who think we're all, we're all so cool. I'm like, no, we're not. Like we're on the we're outside on the opposite. of the red carpet, brother. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> we are the so opposite. That was one. That was one I always remembered. It's really funny. We are, we're the anti-cool. We are. And the funny thing is when you get into it early on, you can be fooled into thinking you're cool. It's almost like almost famous where the young journalist gets to hang yeah. out with the band and he gets fooled into thinking That's he's exactly part of right. the band. And as you get older, you actually no longer want to be a part of the band. But when you're 24 and you're covering it and you're in a pro and you're in a professional locker room and the second baseman knows your name, you think you're the coolest guy. Then you realize they don't give a shit about you at all the first time they freeze you out. And then later on, as you get older and you reach our age, you're like, I don't really give a shit. It doesn't really matter to me anymore. Oh, and that's I the most empowering time. Well, oh, yeah. Not only that, it, it, think about it too, as you've gotten older, they want to talk to you now. You know what I mean? Because nobody yeah, cares who they are yeah. anymore. And right. then it's like, yeah. Right. Well, you, I'm, oh, I'm famous yeah. again for 10 minutes. There is no, it's so funny. There is no greater revenge for a sports writer than the 10 year retired athlete who was an asshole to you when he was 30. None. <laughs> it's the best. Who's, wor- who's now so running true. like the local bagel store. Not that anything's wrong with running a local bagel store, but now he's thrilled that you're coming to do a catching up with segment on him. It's the best. <laughs> well, and uh, you're right. And, and I, I ran into Roy Williams. Who the mm-hmm. old cowboy safety and the, sure. uh, and Roy's doing pretty well. You know, he's running his own, I think, security firm up in Oklahoma. And, but I mean, when he was a player, he had a really bad relationship with the media. He was crusty. He was angry. He was pissy. He was bitchy, whiny. Well, now he's retired and he's doing pretty well. And the Cotton Bowl had a, a Hall of Fame ceremony. They're going to put him. So they bring these old guys back. They, Quentin Coriat from Texas A&M, Roy Williams, mm, John sure. Robinson, the old USC coach. All these names come back because it's a free meal. It's a free trip. It's a chance to be relevant again, you know, show their kids that they were important at one point. So I go up to Roy and he and I are talking and I said, you know what? You're a real asshole to us. And he said, yeah, you're right. I know I was. <laughs> and he was, but it, I'll give him this. At least he admitted it. Do you know what I mean? At least right. he admitted He's like, you know what? I totally was. And, and they're not not terribly apologetic about it. I'm not even apologies. That'd be hollow. But it's more the uh-huh. recognition of, hey, listen, I know I was. He said I was just mad. And the thing is, I don't know if people know Jeff how mad some of these guys are. And I know why they're mad. It's because eight million people are pulling on them in a different direction, and they all want their time uh-huh. and they all want their money. And what they want to do is run around, do whatever they want, have sex with a bunch of young hot women. That's what they want to do, and be an athlete. Right. But they got all this, but right. now they're the patriarch of their family. So they're pissy. They're mad at you because you're just some dweeb loser journalist who wasn't good enough to play. So you're not cool and you don't get it. 
So to hell with you. And then 10 years when nobody knows who I am anymore, they don't care because the money's all gone. If I've been stupid with it, now all of a sudden I'm your best friend. At which point you can say, go fuck yourself, you loser. You were an asshole to me 10 years ago. I hope you fail. <laughs> but you know what's funny? It's so fascinating. It is. I've never talked about this on this podcast. It is a fascinating relationship between writer and athlete because, I mean, all right, so some guy, we'll just say some kid who um, he grew up in, I always use Gary, Indiana, and single-parent household, you know, food stamps, went to a crappy high school where he never had a shot. You know, a lot of his friends, you know, are wound up either dead or, I mean, it's a cliche, but it really is a real life cliche because we've covered a million athletes yep. who go through this. Suddenly they come into money. Everyone's hanging all over them. We're walking up to them, begging them for five minutes of the time. Then we're criticizing them the first time they screw up. We're never allowing for the fact, you know, that they're from Gary, Indiana, and they never had the support system to be prepared for this point in their life, that it's all just a crapshoot anyway. I mean, and we're covering them. And all of a sudden, we're in front of the locker, and this guy who couldn't afford a TV when he was growing up, his family, all of a sudden is living in a $7 million house, and the whole thing is just pure insanity. So we cover it like it's normal, but it's not normal. It's pure weird. It's totally... Right? And I, I think it's, un it's, it's the older I get, I can at least appreciate the unfairness of it, whatever that mm -hmm. means. Uh, colleges have gotten obnoxiously, they don't train these guys for anything anymore. It is entirely no. about the coach and the coach protecting his brand. And that's it. The co I mean, the, right. the, the college access now to these guys is embarrassing. They're like, right. they don't, they won't do it. Uh, so in the pros, then it's pretty much you're fed to the wolves. Do you know what I mean? The, of course. They, there's, they just, they have no clue. And you're, you have a limited amount of time. We all overcover everything, especially the NFL. There's 8 million people in there. Um, I don't think enough people acknowledge the race element that, that exists in there. You know, I mean, you got yep. 50 white dudes, two women, uh, maybe a couple of African American journalists, and the, the vast majority of the team is, is black. So you don't want right. to acknowledge that one because God knows what are we going to do? You're asking them these questions. You're trying to be a nice guy. You're being a nice guy. Then, like you said, they screw up and then you turn around and you're as good at it as anybody ever has been. I mean, and, and guys are good at it. Reporters are good at it. Columnists are good at it. You can come up with a sentence that can cut people in half. And there's no bigger lie. Of all the lies that we tell our kids, the one at the top of the food chain is sticks and stones uh, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Right. What a lie. Words do more damage than I'd rather. I would rather be break my arm than hear somebody say some of the things that they've said about me. You know what right. I mean? When I was younger. Right. And, and you have to be. But when you're 25, you didn't know that. 45, you do. 35, right. yeah, you're probably getting it. And you're right. It is a totally, wholly unfair dynamic. And you said it is a crap shoot. One thing that changed my life or my way of thinking about this all is when I wrote that book, Boys Will Be Boys, about the 90s Cowboys, I went to visit in Florence, South Carolina, a former Cowboy defensive back named Clayton Holmes. And oh, yeah. Clay Clayton played with the team just from 92 to 95, had some drug problems. And when I went to see him, but he was, you know, third round pick in the 92 draft, went to Carson Newman, really nice guy. I went to visit him in Florence, South Carolina. No exaggeration. He was living in a shack connected in, in his mother's front yard. It was like a tree house. I'm um, not in a tree though, in his mother's front yard with a power line running from the house to his little shack 
so he could have electricity. And he would go in to use the bathroom. He had no money whatsoever. He didn't have a car. I think he had been repossessed. He was, had been riding around to work as a personal trainer on a bicycle that had just gotten stolen. He had no money whatsoever. And you, the, the reaction we tend to have is, oh, this idiot, he signed a whatever million dollar contract, but he never had the education. He never had the background. His agent takes whatever percent. Everyone's taking a certain percent. You sign your contract. The biggest bullshit in the NFL to me is the, the announcement that so-and-so has signed a 10-year, $200 million contract. It's uh, all totally. for the ego of the players. It's all for the yep. ego of the players. Because, and they do not and have oftentimes – And the agent. And they oftentimes don't have the, the, the background, financial or educational. And I'm talking about from rural white kids to inner-city uh, African-American kids across the spectrum. They don't have the educational background to know what it really means. So a guy like Clayton Holmes signs whatever, a $3 million contract back then, thinks he's rich, buys the house, buys the car, career ends, no money. And until you sit there, with, until I sat there in his little clubhouse watching him fret over not having a bike anymore and having no money, I don't think I realized the gravity of the situation that, that so many of these guys wind up in. I think it was important for me that to see that. That is heartbreaking. I haven't seen that. How, I, Jeff, how did you have that conversation with him? Because you're an adult, you're a provider for a house, for children, for your spouse. Uh, I mean, you understand now that the real role of money in a lot of this stuff, while money can't buy happiness, it does buy stability and a lot of other things. So when you're sitting there, we're talking to him, how did you have that conversation without just feeling awful? I do feel awful, but I think that's okay. I think it's okay. And, and the thing that like, the thing I can never fully get past, and in a way, I think it helps me maybe as a right, I don't know, maybe it doesn't, is like, I had two parents who paid for my college education. When I wanted an internship my sophomore year of college, they let me take the family car and drive to Champaign-Urbana for the summer. You know, like, I was sitting on the bed reading them my clips in high school, and they were sitting there listening, even if they didn't care. That I mean, even if they didn't want to hear it, they would listen. Like, the support system I had isn't something that Clayton Holmes ever had. And I think it's just an important reminder. We all get on our high horse at some point in our career and we say, how could a guy like this lose all his money? And I just think we need these to understand how it happens is really important. And I think, I just think everyone needs to have those experience. And, and the other thing is, if you're open with a guy, like to me, I just, I talk to Clayton Holmes like I would talk to my neighbor. Well, how'd that happen? You know, blah, blah, blah. What do you, what is this like? I hate to, I always say, I hate to, I hope this isn't off-putting for you, or I hate to ask this, or I feel bad asking this, and I really do, but how does this, how did this happen, or how do you feel, and blah, blah, blah. And I, I generally, if you make the time, don't, don't you find this, if you make the time to show up, people are willing to talk to you. Yes. Uh, I think it also depends on the other person and where they are in their relationship with fame and sort of self-importance. Do, do you know what I mean like that? If they're just 100%. so big time for you. Tony Romo, Tony Romo changed a lot, a lot after, and totally makes sense. Of course he would change a lot. You know what I mean? He, he was a nobody. He worked his way up and he was a nobody in college. He was a nobody when he went to the NFL. And then, a, you know, for a period of time, he becomes the starting quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Of course you're going to change. And then you get generational wealth. Of course you're right. going to change. Then you're being invited to all these A-list parties with all these pretty women who would never have given you the time of day beforehand. You're damn right you're going to change. So I, I see that sometimes, and it, it just kind of depends on where that person is in their sort of spectrum. And right. 
you know, when, when, and, and I, I remember one time there was this guy with the Cowboys. I, one of my favorite stories, I can't remember this guy's name. He was a defensive back, um, that Bill Parcells had signed as an undrafted free agent out of Notre Dame or no, I think Akron, Akron or Ohio, okay. Ohio. He was a nobody. And he goes to uh, Ohio. He's a good player and he's a defensive back and he sticks with the Cowboys, I think for a season and then they cut him and he signs with the Jets. So before then, after he signed with the Cowboys and he made the act of 53, Jeff, Parcells pulled him aside and said, listen, you're going to take your first check because NFL players get paid over 17 weeks. That's it. Unless they're smart and they prorate it out, which they don't. Not enough of them do anyways. So uh, he said, Bill Parcells told this guy, listen, you're going to take your first check. And you're going to put it in a bank account and you're going to live on that check to the end of the season. Every other check, you're going to invest it. And I think he hooked him up with a guy. He said, you're not mm-hmm. going to touch that money. You're just going to put it in the bank and not touch it. So, okay. So he, he does that for the first season. However, I think he was with the Cowboys for a season or two. He goes to the Jets, and he's walking in Giants Stadium. Because obviously the Jets and the Giants share the same venue. And he's walking in, and the security guard stops him. And he says, hey, I wish I could remember this guy's name, Jeff. He says, hey, are you still living on one game check? The guy laughed, and he said, tell Coach Parcells, I'm I'm living in New York now, so it's more like two. He did it. So he would take all of his money. Oh, it's great. And even that Bill would ask the security guard, who obviously he's known forever, when coaching the Jets and the Giants. And this guy came back to the Cowboys eventually. I said, is this story true? And he laughed. He said, yeah. And he had a, he had a Louis Vuitton bag. And I said, is that thing legit? And he said, no, it's a knockoff, man. I'm not going to spend that kind of money. Well, <laughs> he was really smart with his, it was smart. And, and you, when yeah. you meet those guys, those are the, cause you're right. The, the contracts are a joke. That union is an embarrassment. But man, what you're talking about with Clayton Holmes, I don't think people have any idea or appreciation of it's gone. You take a hundred. Think about if someone gives you $200,000, Jeff, think about how fast it's gone. All right. So, uh, Mac, thank you. Uh, thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. I want to thank today's guest, Mac Engel, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Mac on Twitter at MacEngelProf and read his stuff in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Slinging Yang on Apple Music and Google Play, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the great MC Wideout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.